0: A deeply buried toxic secret. Kids are having seizures. People are getting cancers. A hoax that
1: rewrites history. This discovery would astonish almost anyone in the world.
2: And a saga of new world survival. They told of people driven to the edge of insanity. Inside the
3: walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics. Tales of intrigue and wonder. And secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the Mysteries at the Museum. Situated on the frigid grounds of upstate New York is the University at Buffalo's Capen Hall, home to the school's archives. Established in 1964, this vast collection includes priceless artifacts, like a wooden cane and eyeglasses belonging to James Joyce and a first-edition book penned by the world's greatest playwright. But there's one here that tells
0: a real-life tale to rival even Shakespeare's darkest tragedies. It's a foot long, a couple inches wide. It's brown and slightly beat up. According to Professor Richard Newman... This file
3: contains a property deed that is tied to a fight for justice in the face of toxic
0: lies. These documents tell a story of the American dream gone wrong, and one woman's struggle to make it right.
3: What role did this dossier play in one of the most catastrophic environmental disasters in American history? 1977, Niagara Falls, New York. 26-year-old Lois Gibbs is a happily married housewife, raising two young children in a
0: middle-class neighborhood called Love Canal. It was a great neighborhood because you could walk to the schools and the playgrounds. Lois had a relatively new house, and she thought she had the American dream. But that December, her dreams suddenly begin to crumble when one of her children becomes violently ill. Her son Michael started experiencing debilitating seizures Gibbs rushes her son to the hospital. After running a series of tests, doctors make a horrifying discovery. He had a very low white blood cell count. This could be associated with diseases like leukemia. Lois Gibbs was shocked.
3: For the next four months, Michael is in and out of hospitals, leaving his mother devastated. Then, in the summer of 1978, Gibbs comes across a newspaper article that stops her dead in her tracks. It concerns the site
0: of a failed hydroelectric plant with poisonous secrets buried in its past. Between 1942 and 1953, a local chemical company dumped nearly 22,000 tons of hazardous waste material. This toxic waste dump was in the middle of her neighborhood. But what Lois reads next shakes her to the core. In 1953,
3: using this $1 deed, now housed at the University at Buffalo Archives, the site was covered over and sold to a new owner, the Niagara Falls Board of Education. This is the exact same land that Michael's school was on.
0: The expose leaves Gibbs with an unsettling suspicion. She thought this toxic waste dump might have something to do with her son's ill health. Gibbs canvasses the neighborhood to see if her son's condition is simply an isolated incident. She hears an incredible array of stories. Women in the neighborhood are having miscarriages. Other kids are having seizures. There's a whole series of skin rashes. People are getting asthma and cancers. Gibbs draws a terrifying conclusion. The landscape at Love Canal is poisoning the entire community.
3: In August 1978... The unassuming housewife takes action. She forms the Love Canal Homeowners Association to lobby Congress to relocate the neighborhood's residents. Over the course of two years, Gibbs convinces federal authorities to conduct a series of investigations into her community's noxious situation. The Environmental Protection Agency even releases studies supporting
0: Gibbs' troubling health concerns. A third of people tested have some chromosome damage. But despite these frightening results, her call for
3: an evacuation gains little traction. Then in May of 1980, two EPA officials come to discuss the situation in Love Canal. Gibbs stages a rally outside the Homeowners Association office and convinces the men to meet her face to face. She wants EPA to explain
0: why residents haven't been evacuated But when the men offer no solutions, Lois Gibbs snaps. She decided to essentially take these two EPA representatives hostage.
3: Gibbs explains that the hundreds of terrified families outside won't let them leave without a relocation plan. The men have nowhere to run.
0: She was throwing down the gauntlet for one drastic last appeal. For the next five hours, Gibbs holds her
3: ground as the local media begins swarming the office. Then she
0: receives a phone call from the FBI. The FBI issued an ultimatum. Unless they release the EPA hostages, they were gonna take drastic action. Gibbs is told she has just seven minutes to respond.
3: If she doesn't, FBI agents will storm through the crowd and retrieve the hostages themselves. With mothers and children among those protesting, Gibbs fears for their safety. She decides she must do the right thing. Lois Gibbs decided to let the hostages go. Gibbs watches the men leave the office, convinced she has squandered her final chance
0: to help her family and neighbors. Lois Gibbs was dejected because she thought she had achieved nothing. But Gibbs's courageous plea for justice
3: becomes international news reaching thousands of other marginalized victims.
0: People around the world are writing to Lois Gibbs and saying, I live near a hazardous waste environment too. Keep fighting. Help us win the struggle against hazardous waste.
3: With Gibbs's movement gaining steam, the White House is forced to act. On October 1st, President Jimmy Carter signs a bill allocating
0: $15 million to relocate the residents of Love Canal. In the end, Lois Gibbs and the Love Canal Homeowners Association set a great precedent not only for their own community, but for communities around the country. Today, this
3: dossier containing the $1 property deed is held in the University at Buffalo archives, reminding visitors of one courageous woman who succeeded in tipping the scales of justice. The city of Clearwater, Florida, holds the Guinness World Record for the most consecutive sunny days at 361. Set alongside this seaside paradise is the Clearwater Marine Aquarium. Built in what was once an abandoned water treatment plant, today this facility is packed with living exhibits, including stingrays, sea turtles, and dolphins. But amidst these wonders of aquatic life is an item composed of materials not found in nature.
4: We have a really cool artifact here that's about three feet long that is made of plastic and metal. When people see this for the first time, they go, what in the world is that for?
3: As director David Yates witnessed firsthand, this unusual contraption had a huge impact
4: on life both in and out of water. This artifact was designed to help one animal and now has helped thousands of people. What
3: role did this revolutionary device play in an inspiring tale? And how is its impact still felt today? December 2005, Clearwater, Florida. Marine rescuers rush a baby female bottlenose dolphin into the Clearwater Aquarium. Hours earlier, they discovered the wounded creature off the coast with a grievous injury.
4: It was caught in a crab trap. The rope had caught around her tailfoot and pulled it tight, cutting off the blood flow. Rescuers managed to stabilize the dolphin, but it has
3: lost too much blood to save the tail, and it falls off. Now the injured mammal's
4: chances for recovery seem hopeless. Dolphins have to have tails to swim. That's how they propel themselves. There was no chance this dolphin was going to survive.
3: But David Yates and his team remain undaunted. They name her Winter for the season in which she was rescued. And after just a
4: few weeks, it seems the resilient dolphin is adapting. She refuses to give up. She found out on her own, you know what? I can't swim like this, but if I move my body like this, I can propel myself. And that's what she did.
3: But as a year passes, Yates grows concerned about the impact of Winter's
4: new swimming style. It can damage the spine and cause, for example, scoliosis, which is curvature of the spine. And at some point, it could lock her up. Yates worries that further damage
3: will render Winter unable to swim at all. So he comes up with an extraordinary idea. What if someone could make a new tail for Winter? So Yates reaches out to a man named Dan Stremka.
4: Dan helps design and fit people with prosthetic limbs. He lost one of his legs in a lawnmower accident at age four. And that kind of inspired him to go into this work.
3: Dan agrees to help, but he soon discovers the task comes with its
4: own set of challenges. How do we get the buoyancy right? How do we get the flexibility right so she can actually move like a dolphin up and down the way she needs to? So all the mechanics you have in a real-life dolphin's tail, we had to make that happen in an artificial tail. Dan
3: spends the next six months creating various prototypes he thinks will work, like this one on display at the Clearwater Marine Aquarium. When the team tests a model on winter, she begins to swim. But it soon becomes
4: apparent that something is wrong. It started getting loose. We could see the water start seeping through. If the tail wasn't snug all the time, it wouldn't work.
3: But when the team tightens the straps that keep the prosthetic in place,
4: it creates too much pressure on Winter's sensitive skin. The straps were hurting her. There were friction points. So we realized, okay, we have a problem. If she doesn't like that tail, we're not gonna make her wear it.
3: And with each passing day, the staff of the Clearwater Aquarium becomes increasingly worried.
4: We knew if it didn't work, there was no other answer for Winter. So can Winter the dolphin be
3: saved. September 2007, Florida. When a young dolphin named Winter is injured and loses her tail, a prosthetics designer named Dan Stremka is determined to develop a device to help her swim. But every model he makes seems to have its flaws. So will this tail have a happy ending? Dan realizes that to eliminate the pain and keep the tail snug and secure, he needs to place something between the dolphin's skin and her prosthetic.
4: This needs to fit like a surgeon's glove. Very tight, but very comfortable at the same time. But no material
3: like this exists. So Dan decides to create one. Working with a chemical engineer, he develops a brand new substance that he hopes will be up
4: to the task. Dan developed a material... It is a thermoplastic elastomer. It's very soft and rubbery, but also very, very strong. Then
3: he tries the material on himself, creating a rubber-like sock that forms a cushion between his body and his own prosthetic.
4: And he wanted to make sure it worked for him before he took it to his favorite patient.
3: (laughs) And while he finds the material comfortable, there's still one question. Will it work in water? In December 2007, David Yates and his team place the polymer sock around the end of Winter's body. Then they attach a prosthetic and hope for the best.
4: It means the difference between life and death for Winter, literally at that point. It's that big of a moment.
3: As Winter swims away, her prosthetic tail stays securely attached. And just as importantly, it's comfortable.
4: We put the tail on,
3: she's fine. Winter's unique prosthetic makes her the central attraction of the Clearwater Museum. She even stars in a 2011 movie inspired by her road to recovery, Dolphin Tail. But her story doesn't end there. The material designed for Winter finds another practical use in human prosthetics, helping everyone from war veterans to accident victims adjust comfortably to their artificial limbs. Today, this specially designed tail, on display at the Clearwater Marine Aquarium, reminds visitors of the ambitious quest to save a dolphin, who continues to make waves around the world. Situated on the edge of the San Francisco Bay is the University of California at Berkeley. This prestigious institution boasts 20 professors who have won the Nobel Prize. And honoring this rich intellectual history is the home of the university's special collections, the Bancroft Library. Inside, visitors will find a bust of library namesake Hubert Howe Bancroft, an 1850 printing press, and issues of the the turn-of-the-century magazine, The Wasp. But among these objects celebrating a legacy of literature is a tarnished brass plate.
1: The object is the size of a large postcard. It's about an eighth of an inch thick. If you look at it closely, you can make out lettering that has been scratched into its surface.
3: According to the library's deputy director, Peter Humph, the message on this plate resonated far beyond academia's ivory tower.
1: The wording on the plate is an inscription that would astonish almost anyone in the world. What is etched on this
3: brass plate? And how did it transform the history of the nation? February 1937, Berkeley, California. Sixty-six-year-old scholar Herbert Eugene Bolton is a distinguished professor who specializes in the colonization of the Americas. One day, Bolton is visited by a local man named Beryl Shin. He is toting a dirty chunk of metal he says he found on a nearby beach on San Francisco Bay.
1: Shin apparently showed it to a friend who was a student at the University of California who said, I think you should show this to Professor Bolton.
3: As Bolton examines the curious inscription, he can barely contain his excitement.
1: The text on the plate claims this land for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth I of England.
3: And it seems to be signed by a legendary English explorer whom Bolton has researched extensively, Sir Francis Drake. As Bolton knows, the adventurer carried out one of the earliest circumnavigations of the world. The ship's log from that celebrated voyage mentions a day in June 1579, when Drake made landfall somewhere on the Pacific coast. There, he erected a brass plate that claimed the region on behalf of the Queen of England. Fearful that his chief rivals, the Spanish, would later claim the site as their own, Drake kept its exact location a secret. But Bolton senses that this object may finally put the question to rest.
1: For him, it was an extremely exciting prospect that we had some physical evidence that Sir Francis Drake had actually landed in California. So he
3: purchases the plate for $3,500. To confirm its authenticity, Bolton sends the piece to world-renowned metallurgists in New York for testing. And when the results come in, They're just as he'd hoped.
1: It took them a full seven months to do the microscopic analysis. Everything suggested to them that the plate was exactly what it seemed to be. They had no reason to think that it didn't actually derive from 1579. Armed with this
3: evidence, Bolton proudly announces that one of history's greatest treasures has finally been
1: discovered. The press and the public just said, whoa, we found this wonderful historic artifact in California that shows this link to England from so long ago.
3: But not everyone is convinced. Even some of Bolton's colleagues express doubts about his groundbreaking find. For years, doubts about the plate's authenticity linger. But in 1953, Bolton passes away, convinced that it is in fact evidence of Drake's arrival in San Francisco Bay. Then, in 1977, as the 400th anniversary of Drake's landing approaches, scholars at the Bancroft Library decide to put the controversy to rest. Using state-of-the-art nuclear technology unavailable in the 1930s, they test the plate's chemical makeup, and the results are startling. It was constructed using distinct techniques from the 20th century
1: what we were dealing with had been from the very beginning a forgery but who would perpetrate
3: such an elaborate ruse and why it's not until 2001 that the answer finally emerges an archivist combing through the stacks of the Bancroft library discovers a box of papers relating to an old history fraternity named e clampus vitus
1: e clampus vitus was this fraternal organization basically a drinking club very focused on California history.
3: The papers detail a prank played in the 1930s on a member of their own, Herbert Bolton. Knowing their colleague was an expert on early American explorers, they devised a ruse that was nearly impossible to
1: resist. They came up with a scheme to create a plate of brass that resembled what we believed Sir Francis Drake had left behind.
3: Then they carefully placed the fake on a stretch of coastline where it was believed Bolton often walked. For years, the forgery sat undisturbed until the Clampers finally forgot about it. But as fate would have it, it was eventually found and unwittingly hand-delivered to their mark.
1: The discovery of it played into their hands perfectly. It was presented to Bolton by somebody unconnected to the prank originally.
3: The Clampers subsequently suggested to Bolton that the item was a fake. But it was too late. The historian was convinced it was real. While today, the mystery of Drake's actual landing spot remains unsolved, this plate at the Bancroft Library reminds visitors of a decades-long hoax of historic proportions. Canyon City, Colorado. The scenic gorges and pristine waterways of this peaceful community belie its curious nickname, Prison Valley. In fact, Canyon City is home to 36,000 inmates housed in 13 state and federal penitentiaries. Documenting the colorful history of the state's correctional system is the Museum of Colorado Prisons. Its unique assemblage of artifacts features a noose used in the state's last legal hanging. A table built of confiscated shanks, and a chess set constructed by an inmate out of toilet paper. But one of the creepiest items in the collection is contained within a seemingly mundane book of records.
5: The document is nine and a half inches wide by eleven and a half inches long. It has a photograph and some basic information.
3: According to museum administrator Stacy Klein. This piece of paper represents the final chapter in the tale of an elusive and ghoulish figure.
5: This document tells the story of one of the most bizarre crimes ever.
3: Who was this shadowy specter, and how was he finally brought to justice? Denver, Colorado, October 17, 1941. When 73-year-old Philip Peters fails to show up at a dinner party, a neighbor grows concerned and phones the police. When officers arrive at his home, they're shocked by what they discover.
5: Philip Peters was found on the floor of the downstairs bedroom. He was bludgeoned to death.
3: Nothing appears to have been stolen, and there's no sign of forced entry. The only other person who has access to the house is Peter's wife of 50 years, Helen. But she's in the hospital recovering from a broken hip. Investigators are stumped.
5: There really was nothing else to go by. The case eventually went cold. Over
3: the coming months, the Peters' house sits vacant. But soon, neighbors notice something eerie inside the abode.
5: Some children swore that they saw a light on in the window.
3: And that's not all.
5: As a neighbor was walking home, she saw a ghostly figure through the curtains.
3: These spooky spottings and a still unsolved crime Leads locals to one supernatural conclusion.
5: The neighbors definitely thought the house was haunted.
3: Then, three months after the murder of her husband, Mrs. Peters returns to her home, accompanied by a caregiver. One night, the nurse is awoken by a startling sound.
5: She heard a noise in the kitchen, went back there to see what it was... She saw a ghoulish, wraith-like creature covered in filth.
3: The horrified woman darts out the back door, swearing never to return. But when the property is later searched, there are no signs of an intruder. With no one to care for her, Mrs. Peters is forced to leave her longtime home. However, neighbors fear the issue is unresolved and demand a police investigation.
5: The detectives decided to stake out the house.
3: One evening, two policemen suddenly glimpse something hovering in an upstairs window. They decide to rush the abode, unsure of what they'll find. The detectives methodically search the house.
5: They have their guns drawn, their hearts are racing. They could smell something animal-like.
3: When they enter a bedroom, they spot a man frantically trying to hide in a closet and apprehend him.
5: He was definitely malnourished, filthy. He looked like he was on the verge of dying. He told the detectives his name was Theodore Edward Conies.
3: When the officers ask why he's inside the Peters' house, Conies relays a bizarre and haunting tale.
5: He was a drifter, and he had known Mr. Peters' 30 years before.
3: Coney's explains that Peters had shown him kindness when he was in need. Years later, in September of 1941, the down-on-his-luck drifter decided to visit his former benefactor and ask for help. But when he arrived at the Peters' house, no one was at home. The front door, however, was unlocked.
5: He let himself in and helped himself to some food.
3: Then he decided to explore the house he discovered a small crawl space above a bedroom closet and decided to rest. When Peters eventually returned, Conies explains he was too embarrassed to approach the old man, so he quietly remained in the crawl space for weeks and only emerged when he was hungry. But one evening, while Conies foraged for food, Mr. Peters stumbled upon him. Horrified at being discovered, the startled drifter lashed out, and struck Peters with a blunt item.
5: Coney's says that he probably killed him with the second blow.
3: Then, Conies lurked about the house for nine months. But by the summer, the cupboards were bare, and he withered into the skeletal figure discovered by police. In the end, Coney's confession makes it an open-and-shut case.
5: Conies was found guilty of the murder of Philip Peters and was sentenced to life at the Colorado State Penitentiary.
3: When he registers at the prison, officials issue this intake document, now found at the Museum of Colorado Prisons in Canyon City. Today, this 70-year-old record is a grim reminder of one of the most peculiar criminals ever to haunt the state of Colorado. Washington, D.C. boasts over 200 museums that help the city attract nearly 19 million visitors a year. And one of the most intriguing is the International Spy Museum. Opened in 2002, it contains the largest collection of espionage-related artifacts on display in the world, including notes written by a Civil War spy, makeup used to disguise U.S. citizens in Iran, and props from classic James Bond movies. But one curious-looking device was a crucial tool in the hands of America's
6: enemies. And what you see here is a whole jumble of wires, but also tuning knobs. It's about five by five, three inches deep, and it's silver. It was designed to be mobile and light.
3: According to museum director Peter Ernest, this shortwave radio was seen as a direct threat to America's national security.
6: This little aluminum box Played a critical role in an operation right on the eve of World War II.
3: Who operated this radio? And what damaging secrets did it transmit in a high-stakes game of espionage? New York City, 1940. As a traveling correspondent for the New York Herald, native South African Frederick Fritz Duquesne is known as a smooth operator.
6: He was very glib. Very good with words, very good with people. Whatever situation he was in tended to land on his feet, find his way out. On the surface, Duquesne is a hard-working journalist.
3: But he's hiding a dark secret. He loathes America and her allies. In fact, Duquesne is a Nazi spy.
6: He had over 30 agents working for him.
3: His undercover spies collect reams of sensitive data relating to U.S. national security.
6: By 1939, the eve of World War II, he was functioning as as a master spy, as head of a spy ring. But
3: Duquesne faces a problem. He lacks a reliable way of sending this treasure trove of information to his handlers in Germany. So the Gestapo set him up with a German communications expert who has lived in the U.S. for 19 years.
6: His name is William Sebald. Sebald would be the communications link between these deep cover German agents and their handlers back in Germany.
3: Sebald is assigned a cover story as an aircraft engineer consultant and is given an office in the Knickerbocker Hotel in Midtown
6: Manhattan. This would be the place where the secret German agents would come to meet him and would pass on their reports.
3: Soon, Duquesne's communications chief begins sending reports back to Germany using this shortwave radio, which is on display at the International
6: Spy Museum. In this period, Seabold had transmitted over 300 messages to Germany and received some 200. By 1941,
3: Duquesne has honed his massive spy network into a finely tuned machine. But then, on the night of June 29th, disaster strikes. The FBI descends on Duquesne's apartment and arrests him.
6: Before morning, they've brought in his whole network. This would have been the biggest roundup of spies in American history. At least 32 people uh, in one blow.
3: Fritz Duquesne is stunned. Despite the arrests of dozens of German agents, a crucial member of the ring seems to have slipped through the FBI's grasp. Everyone was picked up but one,
6: and that was William Siebold
3: The elusive radio man has simply vanished. Two months later, Duquesne and his fellow defendants enter a federal courtroom in Brooklyn and are stunned by the face that greets them.
6: The lead witness against them was William Siebold himself. Duquesne is blindsided.
3: As the trial plays out, The story of how his trusted co-conspirator came to work for the enemy is revealed. For years, Siebold lived a comfortable life in America, working in aircraft and industrial plants, and he came to love his adopted home. Then, in 1939, he took a trip back to Germany to visit his sick mother. There, he was approached by a Gestapo agent and given a chilling order, use his status in America to spy for the Nazis.
6: He was not really being given a choice, that if he didn't choose to help the Germans in whatever capacity, he would face dire consequences, as would probably his family.
3: Siebold reluctantly agreed to the plan. But deep down, the coercion filled him with rage. So, before leaving Germany, he made an unscheduled stop at the American consulate in Cologne.
6: He immediately asked to see the consul general. And in that meeting, he told the Consul General, as a patriotic American, exactly what had taken place.
3: At the trial, Siebold reveals that he used his Manhattan office as a trap, and that the walls were outfitted with listening devices and hidden cameras. As for the messages that Siebold sent to Germany on his shortwave radio, they were filled with misinformation and falsehoods.
6: I think we have to count Siebold very much as a hero. He certainly put his family at risk, and himself, uh, by taking on the role of double agent. In the end, the entire
3: Duquesne ring is convicted of espionage and sentenced to serve over 300 years in prison. Today, this simple shortwave radio at the International Spy Museum stands as a reminder of a humble German immigrant who helped topple the largest foreign spy ring in American history. Jamestown, Virginia. This isolated strip of land jutting into the James River is best known as the site of the first permanent English colony in North America. The rich history of this settlement has been carefully preserved at the historic Jamestown Archerarium. On display are an array of everyday relics from the legendary outpost, including defensive armor, assorted crockery, and clay tobacco pipes. But according to researcher Jim Horn, one striking artifact affords the most clear-cut insight into the lives of the Jamestown colonists.
2: It weighs just a few ounces. It's at least 400 years old. And it's got some very mysterious marks upon it. This ravaged
3: human skull holds the secrets of one of the darkest moments in the settlement of America.
2: The discovery of this skull has fundamentally changed the way we understand early American history.
3: To whom did this skull belong, and what does it reveal about the origins of our nation? Jamestown, Virginia, 1609. For two and a half years, Captain John Smith has inspired several hundred English settlers to carve out a meager but functioning colony along the banks of the James River.
2: He was feisty, opinionated. Without John Smith, I think the colony would have collapsed within the first 18 months. But there is a problem. In September, the
3: 29-year-old leader is injured in a gunpowder accident. As his condition worsens, he decides that his only hope for survival lies in returning to England to
2: receive further medical treatment. Smith must have felt terribly anxious, terribly worried when he left Jamestown. He knew that supplies were running out quickly, and he knew that without him, it was going to be a terrible experience for the settlers trapped there.
3: After a six-week journey, Smith makes it back to England and is gradually nursed back to health. However, he can't take his mind off those he's left behind.
2: This is the beginning of a long and very frustrating time for him.
3: Knowing that the colonists at Jamestown are in desperate straits, he approaches the settlement's financial sponsor and begs them to send supplies to the beleaguered colony. But it takes more than four months for an emergency supply mission to be launched from England. And when the ships finally anchor in Jamestown Harbor, eight months after Captain Smith's departure, they discover his
2: worst fears have come true. When the English arrive, they find the fort devastated palisades are torn down, the gates are open, the church has been abandoned and disused.
3: Most shocking of all is that of the 500 settlers who were living in Jamestown when Smith departed, only 60 have survived.
2: They cried out as the newcomers arrived, we are starved, we are starved, and it must have been a terrible scene.
3: It seems that after Smith's departure, the colony took a turn for the worse. A fierce winter made it impossible for them to gather firewood, harvest their meager crops,
2: or forage for food. And then we reached the point where they've completely run out of all kinds of food.
3: The details of what occurred during the so-called starving time are scarce. Soon, many in England begin to wonder how anyone endured the harrowing ordeal. It's a miracle any survived at all. But whispers of what really transpired begin to circulate.
2: It was even more gruesome than they could have possibly imagined.
3: The story told by survivors is so disturbing, it sends shockwaves through English society.
2: They told of people driven to the edge of insanity by their hunger and the living eating the dead. We are talking here about survival cannibalism based on Absolute dire need. The tale seems too far-fetched to
3: be true. Over time, it is seen as nothing more than a myth.
2: The rumors of what took place had never been verified. There was no physical evidence. Then, in 2012, archaeologists make a
3: critical discovery. While digging at the Jamestown site, they uncover this unusual skull which is today on display at the historic Jamestown Archearium
2: when we turn the skull around immediately visible to the eye are uh, a series of grooves that look as though they had been made with an axe
3: investigators soon make the shocking determination that these axe marks were made after the victim had died
2: we also found under the microscope very fine cut marks on the on the cheeks. These are all consistent with prying away meat from the cheeks and from the jaw, so not a morsel was being spared. The researchers conclude
3: that the tales of survival cannibalism were true. Further study reveals that this noteworthy skull belonged to a 14-year-old girl,
2: who the researchers dub Jane. When we found Jane, we come face-to-face with someone who lived through that terrible time.
3: In 2013, a computer lab uses this skull to create a scientifically accurate 3D rendering of what Jane would have looked like in 1609. And today, visitors to the historic Jamestown Archerarium can gaze into Jane's eyes and pay respects to her remains. Sad reminders of one of the most painful moments in the birth of America. From a daring double agent to a deadly toxic dump. A tale of triumph to an uninvited guest. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum.